uh, I need to start with a parental warning. Um, because of the nature of the subject that we're studying this morning, we've got to look at some passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that use some words that are probably not appropriate for elementary age or younger children. Um, so I don't know if there's any young children in the audience, but uh, this would be a good time to slip out with your young kids and take them to Sunday school. We have Sunday school up through grade six, um, which would be a much better idea. I'm not going to be graphic on any of the passages, but Bible uses some words that you probably don't want your kid asking you the definition of on the way home today. So uh, I encourage you to, to take your kids out at this time. Uh, this topic is a very, very difficult topic. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is the hardest sermon I've ever tried to put together. Um, it's hard for a couple reasons. Number one, it's hard interpretively. The passages on divorce and remarriage in the Bible are buried in legal and societal context that's very foreign to us. We'll be looking at a lot from the Old Testament that's 3,500 years ago, a lot from the Gospels that's 2,000 years ago. The world has changed a lot. It's very, very difficult to understand these passages. I'm going to have to get technical a lot with you this morning as I walk you through the, the context so that you can better understand these passages. So it's, it's difficult from that standpoint, but it's also a very, very very difficult topic emotionally. I would guess that every single one of us in this room has somehow been touched, been affected by divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage always creates pain. It creates pain for everybody involved. Probably every one of us either knows someone who's been divorced, our parents were divorced, we've been through divorce. We know the pain of this subject, and as we go through Jesus's words on divorce, it's going to hit all of us right between the eyes. This is going to be a difficult sermon to go through. So uh, as I go through this morning, let me just say my goal, my desire is not to heap guilt upon anyone in this room. That's not the hope this morning, no guilt. The, the hope this morning is that every single one of us would walk out of this room this morning with a renewed commitment and motivation to walk faithfully with the Lord. To be the kind of people who have marriages that last a lifetime. To do whatever it takes to stay away from this whole divorce word. That's the goal. All of us growing in faithfulness. Okay, but we do have to look at this subject, at this difficult subject. There's a number of different passages that I could have chosen. Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage on multiple occasions in the Gospels. Uh, I chose Matthew 19. I think it's going to be the clearest passage for us this morning. So turn to Matthew 19. That's where we'll be this morning. We're going to start in verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3. Uh, this passage, this discussion of divorce and remarriage, it begins with a question. A question that was asked, that was, that was put forward in order to entrap Jesus. Look in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now notice their, their motives are very clear. They're trying to test Jesus. That's not testing so that he'll pass and look good. The word is specific. They're testing him to make him look bad. They're trying to trap him in his words. Now, you, you can't understand the question that they asked Jesus if you don't know the background. They are not asking Jesus, Jesus, what are the biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage? That's not the question here. Instead, what they are asking is for Jesus to weigh in on a very well-known debate that was raging in first century Judaism. The clue to that is the last part of the verse, for any reason at all. That's our clue that really what's going on here is that the Pharisees are asking Jesus to weigh in on a debate that was going on about one verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, 
And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and goes on from there. The key phrase in this verse is the underline, found some indecency in her. Moses spoke that 30, or 1500 BC and the 1500 years that passes between him and Jesus. There was lots of debate over the underlined phrase. The Hebrew there is confusing. It's hard to know exactly what Moses meant. Over those 1500 years, two schools of thought came forward. In Jesus' day, there were two schools of rabbis, of opinions, about how to interpret this phase. The first school of thought was under a man named Shammai, Rabbi Shammai. He said that this phrase means an indecent matter, literally adultery. That this man in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is permitted to put away, to divorce his wife because she has committed adultery. That's how he interprets the Hebrew. The, The competing school was Hillel, Rabbi Hillel. He said that this phrase meant indecency or another matter. That's how he translated the Hebrew. That's a possible way to translate it. Less likely, but possible. Well, indecency or any matter means any matter. If it's any matter, that subsumes everything. So basically, Hillel taught a man can divorce his wife for any reason at all. If he burns the dinner, he can divorce her. If he sees a prettier woman on the other side of the street, he can divorce her. Similar to our no-fault divorce system today. That's what Hillel taught. You can divorce your wife for any reason at all. Now, look at those two schools for a moment. Uh, In Jesus' day, which do you think was more popular? Yeah, Hillel, right? Especially with the men. The men love Hillel. Almost all the men in in Israel practiced Hillel-style divorces because it gave them the greatest latitude to divorce their wives. Um, The Pharisees think about it and they say, you know, Jesus, he's a pretty conservative guy. I bet he's going to side with Shammai. Here is our chance to put Jesus publicly on the wrong side of a controversial debate. We can put him on the unpopular side of this debate. We can make him look bad. That's what they're trying to do. They're really not asking what are the grounds for divorce. They're trying to put Jesus on the unpopular side of a raging debate. This is really their question. In this debate, is Hillel right that a man can divorce his wife for any reason at all? That's what Matthew 19 starts with. Okay, how does Jesus respond? Look in the next few verses. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, uh, do you notice something funny about Jesus' response? He never answers the question, does he? He doesn't weigh in. He doesn't pick sides in this debate. Now, he'll do it later. He will weigh in at the end of our passage, but he doesn't do it here. Instead, in Jesus' response, he redirects the discussion. He says, you know what, guys? I don't want to talk about this debate. I don't want to be baited into this debate. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something else. You see, guys, in this debate, both Shammai and Hillel, you don't realize both of you are wrong. Both of you are wrong because both sides have misunderstood the nature of marriage. Both of you are treating marriage as if it's a legal contract, like a lease agreement. Okay, and all we're doing is debating about what grounds we have for breaking the lease. That's what both of you are doing. You don't understand marriage. So what does Jesus do? Well, he goes back into the Old Testament, but he goes way further back. Doesn't stop at Deuteronomy 24. He keeps going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. 
In verse 4, he quotes Genesis 1, 27, God's creation of Adam and Eve, his creation of the first human beings. And then in the next verse, in verse 5, he quotes Genesis 2, 24, God's creation of the first marriage, the marriage of Adam and Eve. What is Jesus' point? He is tying together the creation of human beings with the creation of marriage. What he wants his audience to understand is marriage is not a human contract that you enter into today and then dissolve tomorrow. No, marriage is an act of creation by God himself. Marriage is analogous to the creation of man from the dust. Marriage is not a human institution. You are not married because you signed a marriage certificate. You are not married because the state of Texas grants you marriage. You are married because God created it to be such. That's very significant to me. I do a lot of weddings. This passage reminds me that when I'm standing on the stage and I'm doing the wedding, it is not me as the preacher who makes these two people married. I am not giving them the authority to be married. I am not putting them together in marriage. No, that's not my job. That's God's job. As they say their vows to one another, this verse declares that God reaches down from heaven and recreates them. Two people joined into one new flesh, one new being. That's what marriage is. It is an act of recreation, of new creation by God himself. He creates a one flesh being out of two people. When I tell them to turn around and face the audience and declare them to be husband and wife, I'm not making them married. I'm simply declaring what God just did. This is now Mr. and Mrs. Adam Smith, not because of me in the state of Texas, but because of God. Because God has recreated them into one new life form. That's what marriage is. It is a living bond. It is not a human contract. Okay, that's, that's very significant. Jesus is helping both sides understand you're both wrong. You've both misunderstood the nature of marriage. Marriage is not a, a human contract. It is a new creation by God himself. Jesus wants them to understand that because if he can correct their misunderstanding of marriage, he can begin to help them understand the consequences of divorce. Neither side gets it. Neither side understands how destructive divorce is. That's why they're looking for grounds. Hey, what are all the grounds we can find to divorce our wives? They don't understand the nature of marriage, and as a result, they don't understand the consequences for killing a marriage, for breaking a marriage up. If marriage really was just a legal contract, you go to the justice of the peace, you sign some documents, then it'd be no big deal to exit that marriage. Just go back to the justice of the peace, sign new documents, you're done. Divorce would just be like hitting a reset button on your life. No big deal. But marriage is not a contract. Marriage is the creation of a new living thing. And so divorce is not the end of a contract. Divorce is the killing of a marriage. Divorce is the putting to death of a new creation that God has made. And any time death happens, pain results. That's the first thing we want to talk about with the consequences of, of divorce. Divorce always creates pain and damage. Always. Now, I, I have not been divorced. My parents were not divorced. So I can't say this as convincingly as some of you could. I guarantee the people in this room who've been through divorce, who've seen divorce firsthand, you could get on this stage and you could argue this better than me. Divorce always inflicts pain and suffering on everyone involved. That's the nature of it because marriage is not a legal contract and you just go dissolve it. No, marriage is the creation of a new living thing. Divorce is the killing of that living thing and any time death happens, pain results. Divorce always inflicts pain. Now the marriage may have been painful and divorce may have been unavoidable, but the divorce itself still will inflict pain and suffering 
on both spouses. Another way to look at this, I love the words that Greg Mott uses. I was listening to his sermon on divorce this week, and I think he put it really, really well. Divorce is not a solution to our problems. It is simply an exchange of problems. Unfortunately, our society looks at divorce as a solution. If your marriage is going poorly, if it's painful, if it's not working out, go get a divorce. It's like hitting the reset button. It fixes your problems. That is a lie. Divorce is never, never, never a solution to our problems. It's simply an exchange, one set of problems for another. I was was trying to think this week how to illustrate this. Let me give you a rather absurd illustration. I want you to imagine uh, what would happen if uh, when we leave our offices at night, turn off the lights, lock the doors, what if cardstock liked to come out and play and have parties? What if our cardstock that we have in our copy room really liked to party, liked to get together, liked to dance, liked to listen to music, liked to, to go on dates with one another? And, and particularly, uh, what if uh, the yellow cardstock and the green cardstock really started to like each other? They dug each other. Uh, green loved how yellow looked under the fluorescent light, and, and yellow loved green style, always looking good. And so uh, these two pieces of cardstock in particular, when we leave the office at night, they would slip out under the door and they'd go have a night on the town, and they begin to have more and more fun with each other. And so finally, it is hey, why don't we just get married? And so they get engaged and they go to the justice of the peace and he unites them together in the holy bonds of Elmer's glue. And now they're, they're one new piece of construction paper that's stronger than before, yellow on one side, green on the other. And, and they're digging this marriage thing. It's really fun. It's, it's really a great thing. It's so much fun that they decide to bring some little light green colored children into the world to fill out their family. And they're, they're having a great time. Everything's going well for a while, for the first few years. But, but then they start to rub on one another. And they start to chafe on one another, and they start to uh, wear on the edges. And after a while, Yellow decides that she'd really rather go this way, and Green decides he'd really rather go that way. And Yellow begins to think, man, I'm really more into red kind of gentleman. And Green thinks, man, why didn't I marry pink? That's more my style. What was I doing? And both of them get more and more tired of this marriage. The marriage gets more and more painful. It gets more and more frustrating to them. Seems like it's bringing more and more problems into their lives. So they both decide, hey, we we need to reset our lives. We want to go back to life in the copy room like it was before our marriage. And so they decide to go back to the justice of the peace and get a divorce. And what happens? They don't get to go back. There is no reset button on marriage. You, You can't go back to how life was before you were married. Because marriage is not a legal contract that you enter into today and dissolve tomorrow. Marriage is a new living thing. It is a new creation. Marriage binds us together as one flesh. Divorce kills that bond. And any time death happens, pain results. Both spouses are scarred. Both spouses are hurt by that divorce. Yes, God can bring healing. God can bring grace. But they will always be scarred as a result of that divorce. Divorce is never a solution to our problems. It is only an exchange of one set of problems for another. And as painful as it is for our two pieces of paper, for our two spouses, it's even more painful for their children. When you look at the statistics, it's scary. The pain that divorce inflicts upon families. Divorce is really like a a nuclear bomb that goes off in the middle of the family. It hurts everyone around. There's been a number of studies that have been conducted recently. We're about 30 years into this thing called no-fault divorce in our country. Started in California. It's now all across the nation. You get divorced for no fault. It's led to a huge uh, increase in the number of divorces. Now we're beginning to do studies on what are the results a generation later. Rebecca O'Neill concludes in Experiments in Living. 
For the best part of 30 years, we've been conducting a vast experiment with the family, and now the results are in. The decline of the two-parent married couple family has resulted in poverty, ill health, educational failure, unhappiness, antisocial behavior, isolation, social exclusion for thousands of women, men, and children. Brian and I were doing some research. There's a secular study out now. It's really interesting. These are not believers. These are not Christians. They have no religious views about, mar- about marriage or divorce. They're simply doing the science. They're doing the science on what happens to children through divorce, and they have concluded that in absolutely every case except physical abuse, physical violence, in every other case, the children are always better if the parents stay together, even if the parents hate each other. Even if the parents can't stand one another, the children are better if you stay married every time. That's not the Bible talking. That's secular physicians talking. Children are always better because divorce always inflicts pain and suffering on everyone involved. So what Jesus wants his audience to understand, they were wrong by even asking the question. The question was wrong. The question we ought to be asking is not, what are the grounds for divorce? That's the wrong question. That's a question that admits failure. How can I get out of this marriage? Don't ask that question. The Pharisees are admitting that failure has already happened. They're asking Jesus the wrong question. What he wants us to ask him is, what can we do now to ensure that our marriages will last for a lifetime? That's the right question. Jesus wants us to understand, don't get within a thousand miles of this thing called divorce. Don't talk about divorce. Don't keep divorce on the table of your marriage. Take it off the table. Don't even think about it. You don't want to get anywhere near it. Quit worrying about the grounds for divorce. Do whatever it takes to never get near it. Do whatever it takes so that the D word is never uttered in your marriage. Jesus wants us to do whatever it takes to ensure that our marriages last a lifetime. Now, how do we do that? How do we build marriages that last a lifetime? Well, you're going to have to come back next week. That's a whole sermon. I don't want to give it the, the short end of the stick today. I want to spend all of next week talking about what Jesus teaches us about how to make our marriages last a lifetime. Now, for some of you who are single out there, uh, know that I will be speaking to you also next week. Many of the things that you choose to do now will determine whether or not your marriage in the future will be able to last a lifetime. So we'll look at that next week. We'll learn from Jesus how to make our marriages last a lifetime. So Jesus really doesn't want to get into this debate. It's the wrong debate shouldn't be asking what the grounds of divorce are. We should be focusing on how to make our marriages last a lifetime. Unfortunately, the Pharisees were not content with Jesus' answer. They press him. They're not content to let it go. Look at verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Pharisees take Jesus back to Deuteronomy 24. They're quoting Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 there. They're taking him back to that verse. They're saying, Jesus, we're not content with your answer. We demand an answer. We demand that you weigh in on this debate. Now, actually, the Pharisees are taking it a little bit further here. They just heard what Jesus said, that divorce is never a good option. And they believe that they now have an opportunity not just to put Jesus on the unpopular side of a debate, but to make Jesus appear to be at odds with Moses. You see, all first century Jews, all Jews in the first century interpreted Deuteronomy 24.1 to actually command, you notice that verb here from the Pharisees, to command that if a wife commits adultery, the husband must divorce her. That's how they were interpreting that verse. That's why, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, when uh, Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus, the text tells us that Joseph is looking for a way to put her away. Like, why is Joseph doing that? Well, because he didn't think he had a choice. 
Joseph is looking to divorce Mary to end this engagement because he believes, like all first century Jews, that there's no other choice. And so the, the Pharisees hear Jesus saying divorce should be avoided at all costs, and yet Moses commands divorce if the wife commits adultery. Okay, Jesus, here's an opportunity to put you at odds with Moses. What do you do with that? So again, they're trying to set Jesus up. They're trying to make him look bad. How does Jesus respond? Well, he brings the debate to an end in two parts. Look first at verse 8. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Jesus starts by saying, okay, all of you have totally misunderstood Moses. I'm not in opposition to Moses, you are. You have misinterpreted Moses' words. It's really, really interesting. This is fascinating about the prevalence of sin in human beings. You go back and read Deuteronomy 24 in context. Guess what? It was not written to men. It was written to women. Deuteronomy 24 says that men in ancient Israel were divorcing their wives for whatever reason they wanted to. Knew that God didn't like it, they didn't give a care. They they couldn't care less. They were divorcing their wives, and as a result, what happened in the ancient world, the world of Moses' day, when a woman was divorced? Well, she became incredibly vulnerable. There there were really only um, two options for a divorced woman. I guess three. If she has a rich family, she can move back in with them, but that didn't apply to a lot of women. So they had two options, prostitution or starvation. Not good options, huh? So really what she wants to do is she wants to get remarried, but there was a problem in the ancient world. Problem was is that the first husband retained the legal rights over that woman. In other cultures around the nation of Israel in Moses' day, a husband could go back at any point in the future and reclaim that woman whom he divorced to come back as his wife. So let's say that that a man divorces his wife for whatever reason. She goes out. Well, she doesn't want to become a prostitute, and she doesn't want to starve to death, so she gets remarried to a new man, and they have kids. Well, five years later, the first husband could come back and say, no, I want you back, and your kids come with me. The second husband had no rights in the matter. He had to lose his wife and his kids. Well, with that legal context in mind, I guess you can imagine that there wasn't much of a market for divorced women in the ancient world, was there? No, no one wants to marry them because the first husband could come back at any time and reclaim them. And so what does God do? God sees that horrible situation that is victimizing these women, leaving them without any hope other than prostitution. And God speaks the kindness, the grace of the divorce certificate. That's what Deuteronomy 24.1 is about. It institutes the divorce certificate, something unknown anywhere else in the world, only practiced in Israel. When an Israelite man divorced his wife, he had to write out a certificate that gave his wife the right to remarry anyone she wanted and renounced his claim over her. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy 24, that's what it says. The first husband can never get his wife back. Once he divorces her, she is free to go forever. So Deuteronomy 24.1 is not about giving men more grounds to divorce their wives. It's about protecting the wives who are being abandoned by their husbands due to the husband's hardness of heart. That's why that phrase is used. The husbands were hard in their hearts. They wouldn't listen to God. They didn't care about their wives. They were divorcing their wives despite God's disapproval. And so God provides the protection to the women of Deuteronomy 24. Well, 1,500 years later, what's happened? Sinful men have taken a passage that was meant to protect women and used it as grounds to give them the rights to divorce their wives. Isn't it funny how sin works? Missed the whole point of the passage. Men take it to give themselves more and more grounds to divorce their wives. That was never the intent. So that's the first thing Jesus does, is he smacks all of these men on the heads. You all missed Moses' point. You're the ones in opposition to him, not me. But now at the very end of the passage, Jesus finally says, okay, 
now that I've said my piece, now that I've said what's most important to me, I will weigh in on your petty little debate. Here you go. You want to know an answer. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus is weighing in on the debate very specifically. He's saying, what is the meaning of that phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1? It is talking about a man who divorces his wife, not for any matter, as Hillel says, but only for the matter of sexual unfaithfulness. So Shammai is correct. Hillel is wrong. Now, both sides are wrong in the stuff that really matters, but in this particular thing, Shammai is right. Hillel is wrong. The only grounds that 24.1 gives, Deuteronomy 24.1 gives for divorce, is sexual unfaithfulness. In Greek, it's the word porneia. So we, we need to talk about that. Now what I'd like to do is, is transition. We've covered this passage. Jesus, at the very end of the passage, he does begin to talk about the subject of biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. And that's where I want to go now. What grounds does the Bible give for divorce and remarriage? Well, number one that Jesus gives himself is porneia. That word in Greek is referring to extramarital sex, things like adultery, incest, prostitution, homosexual acts, things of that nature. Now, notice a few things that are not in this definition of this word. Uh, Lust is not part of the definition. Lust is very sinful. It's very bad. It can often lead to these things. But lust does not become a grounds for divorce until it's acted on by having sex with someone who's not your spouse. Uh, Also not included in this list is what we today call an emotional affair, where one spouse enters into a deep emotional relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Uh, That's not part of this word. That's a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. But it does not create a grounds for divorce. That spouse who's in an emotional affair should be confronted. They should be brought before the elders of the church. But it doesn't give their spouse grounds for divorce by porneia. Okay, so porneia is the first ground that Jesus gives. It's actually the only grounds for divorce that Jesus gives. This extramarital sex. Now, is that the only grounds given in Scripture? Well, I don't think so. Remember the context of Matthew 19. Jesus is not answering the question, what are all the biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage? Jesus is only answering the question, how do we interpret Deuteronomy 24.1? What grounds for divorce does it give? Jesus says that passage only gives adultery as grounds for divorce. What about other passages of Scripture? That's where I want to go now. Now, this this is a part of the message that is going to be hotly debated by scholars. It's difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, I'm not giving you here the official position of our church or the position of the elder board. I can't speak for them. This is the position that Brian and I, working together, have arrived at. This is our understanding of the biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. So the first is porneia. We get a second in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 10 and 11 part of the Mosaic law. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, and later she becomes the master's wife, if her owner takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce the slave wife's food, clothing, or conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now let me explain. This is hard to understand this verse without the context. Unfortunately, in the ancient world, slavery was allowed. Um, Slavery was practiced by just about everyone. God did not yet outlaw slavery in the Old Testament. Instead, he drew boundaries around it. He would outlaw it later. Um, But at this point, he draws boundaries around it, and this is one of them. He talks about a common situation here. Poor families would often sell their daughters into slavery. I know it sounds horrible to us. It is horrible to us. God wanted to draw boundaries around the rights of that victimized girl. So she has been sold into slavery to a master. As was common in the ancient world, that master may take that young woman to be his slave wife. 
Um, so he, he brings her into his family. She is now his, his first wife, his slave wife. Uh, but let's say that a few years later, um, he begins to fall in love with a wealthier woman, a woman of status, a woman of, of social uh, esteem. And he brings that woman into his family as his new wife. Well, you can imagine that the husband and the new wife probably aren't real favorable about the first wife, the slave wife. Now, they'd really rather that slave wife go away. They really don't want that slave wife in the home because now he has this new, respectable wife, this woman of esteem and of wealth. And so what do the two of them do? Well, they begin to deny things to the slave wife. All of the man's money, all of the man's food, all of the man's clothing is shunted only to the second wife. Okay, that creates a situation of destitution for the slave wife. She begins to starve. She has no food. She, she has no resources. He also begins to deny her conjugal rights. That's not a problem because of the pleasure thing. That's a problem because conjugal rights are how you have children. And in the ancient world, children were a woman's social security. Children were how you ensured that you would have someone to take care of you in your old age. They didn't have what we have. So uh, this woman is not able to have conjugal rights with this man anymore. She has no hope of children. So she is destitute in the present because he's denying her food and clothing. She's destitute in the future because he's denying her children. Basically, this is a woman who is about to die. This is a woman whose life is threatened by the actions of her husband. As a result, what does God decree? God says she shall go out for nothing. She doesn't have to pay back what the, the man originally paid to, the, to her father. She can simply go out. That's a, a phrase for divorce. She can leave this man and go free. Now, in the ancient world, the right to divorce always included the right to remarry, especially for the woman, because divorce without remarriage was a death certificate for a woman. What two options did she have? Death or prostitution if she wasn't remarried. So this is freedom for her to go out and find a new husband who will care for her. Okay, so Exodus 21, I believe, gives us another grounds for divorce and remarriage. It's the grounds of life-threatening neglect or behavior. If one spouse consistently threatens the life of the other spouse, either through neglect or through their behavior, that becomes grounds for divorce and remarriage for the offended spouse. Now, uh, the Bible does not make this uh, real clear in today's context. It doesn't give us boundaries about exactly what that constitutes in the 21st century. I can't give you a line in the sand. This is what your spouse has to do for it to constitute life-threatening neglect or behavior, especially on this second ground. If you feel like this uh, applies to you, you need to come talk to pastors and, and particularly the elders. Uh, we need to weigh this with you. We need to talk through this. This takes a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of prayer, a great deal of time to figure out if this applies to you. Now, it clearly applies in the Exodus 21 case. I think this would probably uh, apply today to the case of ongoing, continual, life-threatening physical violence. If you have one spouse who is physically abusing the other spouse, or the, the children in particular, I think that you probably do have grounds to pursue divorce to protect yourself and to protect your children. Now, if you can avoid divorce, if you can do it through separation, that's preferable. Anything short of divorce is always preferable because, remember, divorce always creates pain for everyone involved. But I think divorce would probably be allowed in that situation. Now, again, if you're wondering if that applies to you, you need to come talk to me or to the elders. This is incredibly difficult to figure out exactly where it applies today. Now, is that it? Are there just two grounds in Scripture for divorce and remarriage? I think there's actually a third. It's given to us in 1 Corinthians 7 by Paul. Paul says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So Paul starts by saying, okay, um, just that your spouse is an unbeliever, that doesn't give you grounds for divorce. 
If you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, if they're willing to continue to be married to you, you can't divorce them. You need to stay with them. Okay, but, verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, to understand this passage, I've got to give you more background. Paul is not writing to Jewish culture or Jewish laws. He's writing about Roman or Greek laws. In the Roman world of the first century, divorce was much easier even than it is today. All you had to do to divorce your spouse was just leave. Get up and leave. Pack your stuff, leave the house, that's divorce. Or if you own the house, just pack up their stuff, throw it out on the curb, and shut the door on them. That's divorce. That's all it took in the ancient world. So Paul is speaking to those who, okay, you have become a believer. Your spouse is not excited about that, so they abandon you. Or they kick you out of the house, and it's finalized. They've just enacted divorce against you. What do you do? Uh, are you required to follow them around? Like if your husband leaves you, do you have to stay like 100 yards behind him, hoping, hoping, hoping that the marriage will be restored? What do you do? Well, no, Paul says God gives you, in this case, the right to divorce and remarriage. Again, that's particularly important for women. If a woman was kicked out of the house, if her stuff's thrown on the curb, she only has a few choices. Get remarried or pursue prostitution or starvation. Not good choices. So God gives this right to divorce and remarriage in the case of permanent abandonment. Your, other, your spouse has enacted divorce. They have abandoned you completely. I think that gives us a third case for divorce and remarriage from Scripture. Permanent abandonment. Now, I say the word permanent because this isn't just your spouse goes on a bender for a weekend. This is permanent. This is, this is done. He has left you. She has left you. Um, divorce in, in Texas law is not unilateral like it was in the ancient world, so it's a little hard to apply. You probably want to come talk again to the elders or pastors to figure out how this would apply to you. But if your spouse abandons you for good, if they leave, if they're gone, that does seem to provide biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. Well, as far as I see it, that's it. Those are the only passages in all of Scripture that I find any grounds for divorce and remarriage. That means that every other reason that we give for divorce is invalid. If you get divorced for any other reason, that divorce is not acknowledged in the sight of God. And as a result, when you get remarried, your remarriage constitutes adultery. That's the unavoidable point of Jesus. If your divorce does not fit those narrow three grounds, then your divorce is sin and your remarriage constitutes adultery. Just to drive this point home, this, this is completely contrary to the views of our society. If two spouses fall out of love with one another and actually begin to anger one another and frustrate one another, and finally they hate each other, they hate each other's guts, that is not grounds for divorce. If they get divorced, it's sin. If they get remarried, it's adultery. The only grounds that God allows for divorce and remarriage are these three. Okay, let me tie all this together. Let me give you my personal view of this subject of marriage, of divorce, of remarriage in Scripture. Again, this is my personal understanding. This is what Brian and I have worked out together. Number one, I think we learn from these passages that marriage has always been meant to be monogamous. When you read the Old Testament, you see a lot of polygamy, even by very godly men. That was never God's desire. He allowed it in the Old Testament, never liked it, but allowed it. Jesus has since outlawed it. Marriage was never meant to be polygamous. It was designed to be one man and one woman coming together into one new flesh. You can't add a third wheel to that. One man, one woman coming together. That gives us the second point, too. Marriage is, by definition, heterosexual. It is not possible for two men to be married nor two women to be married. It doesn't matter what our nation declares. It's not possible. That's not marriage. 
Marriage is by definition, by creation, one man and one woman coming together in one flesh. God designed it not just, he showed us to that, not just biblically, but biologically. It's only a man and a woman who can biologically become one flesh. Marriage does not apply to two men or two women. Only one man, one woman. Third, marriage is meant to be lifelong. Marriage was designed to be lifelong. It is not a human contract. It is a new living thing. It is a new creation. Till death do us part is what marriage is by definition. Divorce is thus a killing of a marriage. It's not just the ending of a contract. Marriage has always been meant to be lifelong. Fourth, divorce and remarriage are allowed only for very narrowly defined grounds, only in the case of porneia, in the case of life-threatening neglect or behavior, or in the case of permanent abandonment. Those are the only grounds I can find anywhere in Scripture that allow a divorce. A remarriage after any other type of divorce constitutes adultery. Okay, so those are your only three grounds for divorce. Having said that, let me be very clear, divorce is never mandatory in Scripture. Joseph was mistaken. The Jews in the first century were mistaken. Jesus points that out. The Pharisees used the word command. Why did Moses command? Jesus says, Moses permitted you. Divorce is never a command. Divorce is, in fact, never the best option. I personally would never counsel someone to get a divorce. I would never tell them, you should get a divorce. I can tell them, well, the Bible gives you grounds for divorce if you fit one of these narrow categories, but I'm never going to say the words, I recommend divorce, because divorce always inflicts pain and suffering. It is never a solution to our problems, only an exchange of one set of problems for another. So if you can possibly avoid divorce, please do. If you can do anything else, maybe be separated for a long period of time, that's okay. Anything is preferable to divorce. Divorce is never mandatory. I don't think it's really ever the best option if you can at all avoid it. Now, if a divorce does happen, if divorce is unavoidable, or if your partner uh, unilaterally divorces you, which is occasionally possible in Texas law, last thing I would say is reconciliation with your ex is always preferable if possible. God is in the business of healing things. That's what he loves to do, heal things, bring beauty from ashes. So if it is possible to be reconciled with your ex, that is always what God wants you to do to seek reconciliation and healing with them. That means that if neither of you are remarried yet, you should leave time for reconciliation. Don't rush to get remarried. God wants to heal that marriage. That's what he does. That's what he loves to do is restore what's broken. Reconciliation is always preferable. So that's my understanding of divorce and remarriage. If there's a section of that that you disagree with, you're welcome to come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about this and help you understand it better. Where I want to go... At the end of this talk, what I want to do now is I want to talk to those of you who have already experienced divorce. You have already been divorced. You've been through a divorce. Well, everybody in the world who has been divorced fits into one of two groups, biblically speaking. First of all, there's the group of people who have been divorced for biblical grounds. You had biblical grounds to be divorced. Your partner committed porneia, or your partner threatened your life on an ongoing basis, or your partner permanently abandoned you. If that's you, what I want you to know from these passages is that you have biblical grounds to be free of shame. Your divorce was not a shameful thing for you. You were not sinning in getting that divorce. God gave you permission to pursue a divorce because of the actions of your spouse. Uh, We don't talk a lot about divorce and remarriage in the church, and as a result, it sits out there like this ugly cloud. 
And, and everybody who's been divorced for whatever reason feels this, this cloud of shame upon them. They feel like they walk around with a big D on their forehead. They don't want anybody to know they've been divorced because it feels like a shameful thing in the church. What you need to know is if you've been divorced and you had biblical grounds, you have no reason for shame. No reason for shame. You're not a second-class citizen. You were not sinning when you got that divorce. You have freedom from shame and guilt. We do not judge you. You acted upon what God gave as a righteous grounds for divorce. And not only do you have freedom from shame, but you do have freedom to remarry. You are free to go marry someone else. Now, reconciliation, if it's possible, is still preferable. That's what God loves to do. He loves to heal a marriage. He loves to bring people back together. So please pursue reconciliation if it's possible. But know that you do have freedom to remarry. Okay, so that's to those who fit in the group who had biblical grounds for enacting a divorce. What about the rest? What about those of us who either caused a divorce, we committed porneia, we threatened the life of our spouse, we abandoned our spouse, or we pursued a divorce for uh, grounds that are not biblical, for some other grounds? Uh, Because we fell out of love with our spouse, we pursued a divorce. We enacted an invalid divorce. What about us? Well, I think these passages have three things for those in that category. Number one, they do have serious conviction. Jesus wants us to understand divorce is no light thing. In divorce, you are not breaking a contract. In divorce, you are killing a marriage. You're killing a living thing that has serious consequences. And when you get remarried, uh, that's no minor thing. That is adultery. That's a big sin. That is adultery when you get remarried after an invalid divorce. God wants us to know that. He wants us to recognize that. If that applies to you, uh, the first thing that you need to do if you haven't done it already is you need to confess it. You need to say the words. You need to admit it both to God and to those you've hurt. You need to go back to your ex and you need to say, I'm going to quit making excuses. I pursued a divorce that was invalid. I sinned against you. Or I committed pornea. I went and had an affair. I sinned against you. That is my fault. I killed the marriage. You need to say that to your spouse, your ex. You need to say that to your kids. You need to even say that to your new partner. This is what I did in my previous marriage. You need to say the words to them and to God. You need to admit it. That's the first step towards healing is no longer trying to hide it. No longer trying to minimize it. This is no minor thing. You didn't just break your way out of a lease. This is serious. Having confessed it, Let me encourage you, if you are not remarried, you need to pursue reconciliation. If you uh, created a divorce through porneia or neglect or abandonment, um, or if you uh, enacted a divorce or got a divorce for invalid grounds, I I need to be very clear here, you do not have the right to get remarried to anyone other than your ex. God will not look favorably on that marriage. You do not have the right to get remarried. You need to go back to your spouse. You need to go back to your ex. Reconciliation is the only option available to you is to pursue that. Now, what about if you already have been remarried? What do you do? Well, I'm not calling you to break up the second marriage. Two wrongs don't make a right. That would not fix anything. Um, Fortunately, God gives us forgiveness. If you are already remarried to someone else, what you need to do is you need to commit to make this second marriage work. Don't break up another marriage. When you look at the statistics, it's about 40% of first marriages end in divorce. Second marriages, it shoots up to like 50-60%. Third marriage is 70%. Don't become a part of that statistic. Commit that this time you're going to do whatever it takes to make it work. This time you're going to take divorce off the table. It will never be an option that you will pursue. Do whatever it takes to make that second marriage work. So the first thing that these passages have for you if you fit this group is serious conviction, but we're not ending there. What God also has for you this morning is superabundant grace. Romans 5.20 is one of my favorite verses. 
It says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is one of the few places where studying Greek is actually really fun. Literally in Greek it says where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's what it literally means. Where sin in our lives abounds, grace superabounds. It flows over us. Your sin can never reach above God's grace. God's grace always drowns out your sin. That's the great news of the gospel. Divorce, remarriage is not the unforgivable sin. Remember, we studied unforgivable sin a few weeks ago. It's not divorce and remarriage. You have not committed some unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven. All you need to do is simply accept the gospel if you haven't already. Forgiveness comes, this this flood of grace comes to all who choose to believe that Jesus died for all of your sins, including this one, and rose from the dead. Jesus offers to every person on the planet the free gift of forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness, and eternal life with God if you will simply receive it in faith. Simply believe that Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead. If you've made that decision, if you've trusted in Jesus, then your divorce and your remarriage do not put you in some category of unforgiven. You are forgiven. God's grace covers you. Third thing that God has for you this morning, supernatural healing. The danger of my paper analogy that I did earlier is it can be too depressing. Looks pretty ugly when you tear those pieces of paper apart. Good news is we have a God who is not limited in power. Our God, as Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. Healing two divorced people is not too difficult for you. Healing the children of a divorce is not too difficult for you. Healing a marriage after adultery has happened is not too difficult for you. Healing a marriage after physical violence has happened is not too difficult for you. Healing any of us is not too difficult for God. That's what God does. God's business. What does it say on his business card? Healing things. He loves to heal. He wants to bring renewal. He wants to bring life and beauty out of the ashes of divorce. So if you're here this morning and you have gone through divorce, know, yes, there, there will be permanent scars in your life. You cannot avoid that, but God can heal the wounds. He can bring beauty. He can bring grace. He can bring healing and growth, not just to you, but to your kids. Your kids don't need to become a part of those ugly statistics out there. Your kids can live great, wholesome lives. Yes, they will be scarred, but they can rise above it because God has infinite power available for them. So that's where I want to close this morning is I want to turn to the Lord and ask for his infinite power in our lives. For those of us who have been divorced, that he would heal, that he would renew, that he would restore. For those who haven't been divorced, that we would grow to be the kind of people that live marriages that last for a lifetime. That take divorce off the table, that never get close to the question of what are the grounds for divorce. That should be our prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you again so much for the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. Thank you that even a sin as serious as divorce and adultery is forgivable. That we can be cleansed of it, that we can be healed from it, that we can be restored because of what Jesus did on the cross. That he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I pray for every person in this room that they would know your grace and forgiveness through Jesus. I pray for every person in this room, Lord, who has experienced divorce, who has been divorced. I pray that you would be with them now. That they would not feel despair, but that they would feel hope. That they would be honest in their confession, but then they would also know your grace and your healing. I pray that you would bring restoration. I pray for those who've been remarried, that their second marriage would not end like the first one did, that it would last a lifetime, that it would grow ever stronger. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have not experienced divorce, that we would commit today to live lives um, that build our marriages, 
uh, that we would live lives uh, following the pattern of Jesus Christ, laying down our rights, our desires for the good of our spouse. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that doesn't fall prey to the statistics of divorce, but instead rises above them, uh, that we would evidence marriages that last a lifetime, that we would love our spouses well, and through that, that we would love you well. Father, we just pray so much for your grace in the midst of this difficult topic. We thank you for how much you love us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.